0: Hi, uh, my my name's Michael Carlson. I think I think I'm still new-ish. I'm the I'm the new-ish pastor of congregational care uh, here at First Woodway, and I I have the pleasure of bringing God's word to you this morning. Um, And and if if you ever do stop by our office, which is just right on the hill over there, um, and you come into my office, uh, you will you will probably see this emblem. Uh, on, on one of my shelves. And uh, this was a gift from my parents. Um, it says Reliant K. It's, it's, uh, it's actually literally the, the decal to my second car I ever owned. And uh, besides the fact that it happens to be the name of my favorite band when I was in high school, totally coincidental, uh, every time I look at this, it reminds me of something that happened when I was 18 years old. Uh, I, I had just gotten home from a week-long snowboard trip with my youth group, uh, suffering on the slopes for Jesus, uh, and, uh, and I was exhausted. It was late at night. Uh, I was tired. I had about a 20-minute drive on a long country road. It was 1 in the morning, um, and I was driving my 88 Plymouth Reliant K. And I don't know how else to say it. My eyelids felt like lead, I was, I was tired, and I did everything I knew to do to stay awake. I blared my radio. I rolled down my windows. I, I literally was slapping myself harder than is probably good for me, but I was, I was doing everything I could. But I could not ultimately resist the desire to sleep, and I closed my eyes and fell asleep. Well, fortunately, uh, I only dozed off for about four or five seconds, which is about... All it takes to slowly veer off the road. And when I opened my eyes, I saw a telephone pole coming right at me. And so I swerved quickly, missed it, but then overcorrected. My car spun, hit an edge, rolled twice into a ditch, silence. Miraculously, by God's mercy, the only injury I sustained was a scratch on my toe from climbing out of the ditch. But I had fallen asleep at the wheel and had wrecked my car. This is all that's left of it as of right now. (laughs) Uh, But but every time, though, every time I look at this, I'm reminded of two things. First, uh, God's mercy, because there's no reason why I shouldn't have been wrapped around a telephone pole that day. But, But the second thing I'm reminded of, and this is what We're gonna talk about this morning is something that I think is intuitive to all of us. We all know this that falling asleep, drifting off to sleep when you should be awake can have disastrous consequences. And as this is true, we all know when it comes to when you're behind the wheel of a car, it is so much more true in the spiritual life. Drifting off to sleep when you should be awake can have disastrous consequences. This, this morning, we are continuing in a series that Dr. Sands started a few weeks ago called Letters to the American Church, and, and we're looking at seven letters, really from Jesus through John, the author of the book of Revelation, to ancient communities of Jesus followers, churches in, in the ancient region known as Asia Minor. And this morning, we're looking at what Jesus had to say to the church in Sardis. And if, if we have ears to hear, friends, I, Jesus has something to say to us. This is Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is God's word. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches.'" God's word would you pray with me? Father, we pause now and we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears and our eyes to what you have to say. We, we invite the teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit. Don't let us leave this morning unchanged. We love you too, and we pray in your Son's name, by your Spirit. Amen. Now, it's clear in these words that Jesus is addressing a problem. He's issuing a warning, and I'm gonna be honest, I feel uncomfortable when I read these words because they hit a little close to home. And it's it's not that Jesus doesn't have anything positive to say to the Sardinian Jesus followers. Uh, In the end, he says, hey, there are a few of you who have not soiled your clothes, a metaphor for remain faithful to me. And yet there's a very clear problem that he's addressing. There's a warning that he's giving. And it's intriguing to me what he's not saying. Let's first notice what Jesus isn't saying here. Notice that Jesus didn't say anything in here about Christians being persecuted by the Roman authorities. He He didn't say anything about a tension between Christians and Jews, which was common in a lot of the other churches. He didn't say anything about accommodating to pagan religious practices, again, something we hear in several of the other churches, nor does Jesus mention anything about false teachers, false prophets. It's it's wildly vague what Jesus says here, And, and yet there is a problem, and this is how he puts it. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Ouch. <laughs> that's that's hard. I don't don't like hearing that, and I'm I'm sure the Jesus followers in Sardis didn't either. And yet what they had done is they had somehow curated an image. They had constructed a veneer such that when others looked at them, they looked like good Christians who had it all together. And they could fool people. Other Christians, when they looked, they would look at them and be like, yeah, they're faithful. They're following Jesus. Yet the thing about Jesus is he doesn't just look at the surface. He sees beneath the surface to our hearts. And when he looked at this community, he said, listen, I I know what other people see, but what I see is you look alive, but you're, you're dead on the inside. And then he uses another metaphor. You're asleep. What, what you need to do is wake up. And when I read this, I can't help but reflect on, on my own life and, and think about the fact that this is such an important word for followers of Jesus in our society today, in this room today, in my own heart for me today, because as I look at my life, if I, if, as I look at the proclivities of my own heart, it's easy, I find it easy to fall asleep. I find it easy to drift off, to veer from the way of Jesus. And I think there are reasons for that, actually cultural reasons. Think about about when I was back in my car, when I was 18, and trying so hard to stay awake. There were all sorts of things swirling around that contributed to me falling asleep, all sorts of things lulling me to sleep. I, I had been working hard all week trying to s- stay upright on my snowboard. I, uh, I had been up for a long time. It was about 1 in the morning. I was alone in the car. It was dark. And let's be honest, I was 18, so I was invincible, right? I can make it home, right? There were all sorts of factors that contributed to me slowly being lulled to sleep. And it's no different in our society today. There are forces at work all around us seeking to lull us into spiritual sleep. And and we could spend the rest of the morning naming these things. They may be different for some of us, but I I just want to mention two. Two things in our culture that that if we're not careful, will lull us to sleep, will cause us to veer. And the first we might call chronic busyness. We live in a culture that rewards busyness. And, and I'm not just talking about a full schedule. I have two kids. Life is full, right? I'm, I'm talking about the the tendency in our culture for this culture of busyness to seep its way into our heart so that we live in a state of constant hurry. A number of years ago, two medical professionals, one of whom was a cardiologist, wrote a book in which they coined this phrase, hurry sickness, which is basically living with a a constant and excessive sense of time urgency, This is why when you're not late, you still speed, right? don't, Don't pretend like I'm the only one, right? This is why in the mornings, on those rare mornings when we're trying to get our kids to school and not be late, on the rare mornings where we actually have time, we're not crunched, I still find myself snapping. I still find myself rushing my kids because we are plagued by hurry, sickness. And when we are in a perpetual state of hurry, right? Think about this. When you're in a hurry, are you the best version of yourself? Like, think about the fruit of the Spirit. Are you the most loving you? Are you the most joyful or peaceful or patient version of yourself? Let me answer this for you on my behalf. I'm not. Which is why Corey Tenboom said, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. Hurry sickness has disastrous spiritual consequences for following Jesus. It does. I mean, look, look at the life of Jesus. Was he ever in a hurry? I read, I've been doing this the past few years. Read through one of the Gospels with this question in mind. Can you ever, maybe, but I, I haven't been able to find a moment where Jesus seemed rushed. We were talking about this in a life group last Sunday. Jesus, he, he would encounter interruptions as divine appointments. He, he would he would take a nap in the middle of the day, sometimes in a storm, <laughs> right? Like, I want to follow this Jesus. His disciples would be like, come on, we got to go. And he'd be like, wait, I have to go off to a lonely place. I just need to be with the Father for a little bit. He was never rushed. Friends, if we want to wake up, we we have to recognize that we We live in a world of chronic busyness, and when we're unable to slow down, we cannot hear that still, small voice. But but it's not only busyness. I also think, to name one more thing, we live in a a cultural moment of unprecedented distraction. And, And I think largely we have our friend the device to thank for this. And, and let me just say, I'm, right now, I'm preaching to myself. You can talk to my wife. You can talk to my kids. It is a constant struggle for me personally to peel my eyes away from this device. And yet, think about it. For the first time in history, for the first time in history, we as a people never have to be alone with our thoughts which is why one of my favorite spiritual writers put it this way. He said, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Whether it's social media or YouTube or the news or whatever it might be, we never have to be alone. Um, One of my other favorite spiritual writers, John Orkberg, put the problem this way. He said, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith, it is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. Friends, it is in the midst of a culture, in the midst of a society so busy and so distracted that Jesus speaks and he's speaking this morning and he's saying, friends, wake Wake up. So how, how do we do this? How do we live a spiritually alive life? Well, Jesus has a few things to say. I'll just mention two. In verse 3, he says first, Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Remember what you have received and heard. Now, what did this community receive and hear? Well, presumably, Jesus is referring to the gospel. He's referring to the very message, the central message of the Christian faith that had formed this community in the first place, the very words that captured the imagination of these Jesus followers' hearts and minds that transformed them. And and there are many different ways to articulate the gospel, the central message of Christianity, but at the center of it is The good news that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the God of all creation has come to us with infinite love and calls all people, welcomes all people to turn and to come to him to find grace and to find life. Jesus is at the center of it all. He's saying, listen, if you want to wake up, remember what you have forgotten. Remember what you've received and heard. See, I'm, I'm convinced that so much of the Christian life is, is not so much a matter of learning new things, and there's a lot of that. Hopefully, we are constantly learning new things, but I, I think so much of following Jesus has more to do, not with learning new things, but remembering the most important things that we so easily forget. This is, this is in many ways what we do with our kids, if you think about it. If you're a parent or if you've worked with kids, so much of what we say, even though they're learning so many new things, the vast majority of things I tell my kids are things they already know but are, like, really important, and for some reason they forget. Right? And even, and, and so I've intentionally tried to think through, like, okay, what are the things that I really want them to know? And, and so there's this one thing I'll always say, ever since my kids were little, including especially when they would get in trouble, and I think of my daughter especially, like, looking at her, and she's upset. She's just gotten in trouble. There will be consequences coming, but I, I've, I've always tried in those moments to look at her and be like, okay, sweetie, listen, There's something really important you need to know. There is nothing you can ever do that would make me stop loving you. Like, whatever else we're going to talk about, and we are going to talk about other things, you just have to know this. And, and this is one of these things that I tried to just ingrain into them so that it would seep into their bones to the point now where anytime time I start to say that, there's nothing you could ever do. They're both like, I know, Dad, there's nothing we could ever do that would make us, you know. And they, they know it. Why? Because I want them to not just know this in their head, but know it in their hearts. I want them to know that there is infinite, unconditional love available to them. And that as they grow, I want them to realize that ultimately, I'm not the source of it as their earthly father. Their heavenly father is the source of it. And he, therefore, is the deep well that they can come back to over and over and over again. Because if they know that he is the source of infinite love, then they won't be tempted to veer. They won't be tempted to go and look elsewhere to fill that void in their hearts. That God's love was created to fill, like, we are a forgetful people. If we want to wake up, says Jesus, remember what you have received and heard. But he doesn't stop there, though. We, we need to remember. But he also says, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. And he says, hold it fast and Repent hold it fast, and repent. If we want to live spiritually alive lives, we need to remember and we need to repent. Now, I don't know what comes to mind when you hear this word repent. A few weeks ago, Dr. Sands in a sermon, I think really helpfully, mentioned the fact that often the word repentance carries kind of negative connotations. Even me, and I'm a pastor, when I hear the word repent, I kind of gristle a little, it, it, it doesn't feel good, and, and I think it's because when I think of that word, I have this picture in my mind, this image of a street preacher, and I, I've, I've, I've come across this street preacher in every major city I've spent time in, Seattle, Phoenix, New York, pick a city, you go there, at some point, you will come across a street preacher who has a big sign that says, repent on it. It's usually animated with flames. It, I, really, it, he's usually on a platform. And he's often loud and angry. And and please don't misunderstand me. Judgment is a part of the gospel. One day God will show up and we will all stand before him. And he will make good on his commitment to eradicate all evil and all sin from his creation. But if when you hear the word repent, that's the character, that's the image that comes to mind, believe me, there's so much more to what it means to repent contrast this image of a street preacher, an angry street preacher, with a story of Jesus. I think a story that many of you know probably better than me, but perfectly captures this invitation to repent. It comes from Luke chapter 15. We often know it as the parable of the prodigal son. So Jesus says there's a father who has two sons, and the youngest son comes to his father one day and says, hey, I want my share of the inheritance. Shock him. In this culture at this time for a son to do this because basically what the son is saying is, I wish you were dead. Even more shocking, the father acquiesces. The father gives the son his inheritance and the son is gone. He takes off. He doesn't veer. He does a 180 and he runs in the opposite direction of home as fast as possible and he he does what we all know he was going to do. He, he squanders all of his money. He spends it on wild living. He parties it up, makes a bunch of friends who, of course, the minute his money dries up, abandon him because they ended up not being friends but leeches, and he spirals. And he winds up as a hired hand for a pig farmer, which, again, as a good Jewish boy, shocking, And he gets to a point of such poverty that that he can't afford food. So he ends up eating the slop that he's charged with feeding to the pigs. And, And it's at this point in the story that two things happen that we need to pay attention to. First, he remembers what life was like with his father. He remembers. In particular, he remembers the character of his father And he remembers that the servants in his father's house had a better life than he does now. They were doing much better because his father's generous and loving and kind. He remembers. And then you know what he does next? He repents. He changes his mind. He turns around. And he comes home. And when he comes home, what he finds is not a father sitting there with arms folded, but a father with arms open wide, literally running toward him. Friends, to repent is to come home. That's what repentance means. It's to come home into the open arms of the father. And so listen, I want to leave you this morning with two questions. AND THESE QUESTIONS ARE FOR YOU, FOR YOUR OWN PRAYERFUL REFLECTION. WHEREVER YOU FIND YOURSELF THIS MORNING, PICK ONE OF THEM. YOU CAN REFLECT DURING THE NEXT SONG, DURING THE LORD'S SUPPER, WHICH WE'LL TAKE IN JUST A MOMENT, LATER THIS DAY, THIS WEEK. BUT JUST CONSIDER THESE TWO QUESTIONS. THE FIRST QUESTION IS SIMPLY THIS. WHAT DO YOU NEED TO REMEMBER? WHAT HAVE YOU FORGOTTEN? Maybe maybe you're here this morning and you have forgotten what God is like. Maybe you've gone through hard times and you've begun to question his character. Maybe you've begun to veer. You've begun to fall asleep. What is it that the Holy Spirit might be inviting you to remember? What have you received? What have you heard? What do you need to remember? Second question is this. What might you need to turn from? What might you need to turn from? Maybe you're here this morning and you know that you're headed in a destructive direction. Maybe there's some sort of habit or practice that you've fallen into that, if left unchecked, will bring ruin to you and those around you, and you you know this. Maybe you've gotten into a pattern of of negative self-talk, and you replay these conversations in your head over and over again, and rather than produce the fruit of the Spirit, they produce something else that you know is not the life that God wants for you. Maybe, maybe you have begun to veer down the road of bitterness, and you are withholding forgiveness from someone, and you have forgotten the fact, as my father used to say, that bitterness is the poison you drink, hoping the other person dies. And Jesus is speaking this morning, and he's saying, listen, remember, remember the forgiveness that I've given you. Come home. Come home, and you will find in me the strength to forgive. What is it that you might need to turn from? We live in a world, a world that's conspiring to lull us to sleep, whether it's busyness, whether it's distraction or something else, but it's in the midst of the world such as this. It's within this room. It's within your very heart that Jesus is speaking this morning. And he's saying, please wake up. Please wake up. Remember what you have received and heard and come home. Pray with me. Father... We, we pause now and we thank you that you love us so much that you do not let us stay the way we are. You do not let us stay where we are. But because you're a good father, you you invite us to come. You warn us. You call us to yourself. And so this morning, God, we ask quite simply that you you would clarify in our own hearts and minds what we need to remember. If it's it's of you, if it's something about ourselves, remind us of the gospel. And God, if there's something we need to turn from, I I ask that you, by your spirit, would, would steer us toward you, bring us back to the way of Jesus, which is always grace and mercy and love so that we might be people living fully alive lives, reflecting your grace and your mercy to all of those around us. We, we love you, Father, because you first loved us. And we pray in the name of your son, Jesus, who gave everything for us on the cross. And we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.